one way or another, we must proceed straight to an election. Ready for an election. We're going to go out there with a very strong message. What we've asked for is an early election. This goes back to the people. We put forward a plan for a general election that would make sure that we had no deal off the table. Well, it's on. It is happening. Happy Christmas election, Britain. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast and the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Jeremy Corbyn has agreed to back every other party in supporting a general election in December. So it's perfect timing for us to assemble a crack panel of experts to try and cast a critical eye over what might happen in the polling and who exactly is going to be running the election campaigns as they unfold. Gabriel Milland, a former government communications chief and now partner at Consultancy Public First, will explain what it's like working with Dominic Cummings and discuss whether PM's closest advisor is a genius or a menace. Times columnist Rachel Sylvester takes a look inside the psychodrama in Team Corbyn. But first, this is what you really want to know. You govs Anthony Wells on how Boris Johnson's election gamble might not pay off. Most of the polls give the Conservatives a double-digit lead in voting intention. Surely that translates into a healthy Conservative majority, just like that big Conservative lead in the polls before the last general election did. Just in case you haven't learned not to be too complacent about elections, it could go terribly wrong for the Tories. So actually, let's deal with the obvious. Why should we trust polls? You shouldn't trust us blindly. I mean, we have occasionally got it wrong in the past. Have you changed anything since last time to make it more likely that you'll be right? The reason most of the polls got it wrong last time is that everyone tried far too hard after 2015. And so there was lots of elaborate turnout turnout adjustments that assumed young people wouldn't vote and that old people would and, and were actually quite a long way from what the raw figures would show. Obviously, they all backfired terribly. And so everyone has got rid of all of those things. So all the things that caused the polls to be wrong in 2017 have gone. That's not going to happen. Some of the things that caused the polls to be polls to be wrong in 2015 may not have been fully addressed. And that's why there's such a difference between mm. the polls now and why some polls have got big conservative leads and some polls have got small conservative leads. And it's worth pointing out, and this is something I use all the time in Red Box as well, if you look at the trend and not the snapshot, actually... During the 2017 election campaign, Labour built their vote share. Now, the final figures might not have been exactly what came out of the election campaign, but Jeremy Corbyn clearly increased Labour's vote share from beginning to end. And if you chose any pulse, you could see that happening. Exactly. The reason there was a huge, great big lead at the start of the Conservative campaign, but the Conservatives didn't win, was partly because the polls were wrong, but mostly it's because the Conservatives had an awful campaign and Labour had a good campaign and lots and lots of people changed their mind during the election campaign. Yes, here we go then. Who's going to wait? We could take the next six weeks off, Andrew, if you just tell us what's going to happen. I am not going to be lured into the <laughs> Here's one thing that I think Go will on. happen, however, or won't happen, is that we're not going to get the same build in, in Corbyn's support, or at least not in the same way that, that happened last time. People know a vast amount more um, about him um, than they did in, in 2017. The anti-Semitism issue really has cut through, um, I think. Well, I know. I've done a lot of research myself um, in that area, focus groups, etc. Um, um, and, you know, he isn't the blank canvas that people were able to project their 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 aspirations on, plus um, as well, you know, he's alienated a lot of people um, who are Remain voters. People have have worked out that actually he's not massively keen on Remain. 
I think he'll still get something of a boost. Yes. He's still, all the things you said were right. He's not a blank canvas. People won't project their views and all that thing. So I doubt his personal ratings will soar in the same way they did. But part of the reason that he did so well in the next next, 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 2017, the biggest chunk of people who moved towards Labour were former Labour voters who'd previously been saying don't know, who, when it came to an election, held their noses and voted for the man, even though they still didn't really like him much. And that chunk of people are still there in the polls. People who voted Labour last time are now saying don't know because they don't like any of the options. But lots of them will probably hold their nose again. But whether they hold their nose for Labour or Liberal Democrats is perhaps a different question. One really interesting thing about that is that those, I suspect, are the voters that the Tories are relying on or, or counting on to switch towards them uh, um, as well. Those people who are kind of tribally Labour but disheartened. That creates quite an interesting dynamic that might work in the Labour Party's path or at least not work in the interest of the Tories. So, Anthony, the, the exam question, how could the Tories get this wrong? They've got, as you say, depending on which polls, it's 10 15% lead in the polls, Labour neck and neck with the Lib Dems. What does Boris Johnson need to do to not muck this up? The only reason they've got a lead is because the Leave vote is mostly united behind the Tories and the Remain vote is split between Labour and the Liberal Democrats and the Greens and the SNP and Uncle Tom Cobbley and all. He needs to maintain that on both sides. So if Nigel Farage, who seems to have been missing in action for the last three weeks or so, if Nigel Farage is back on the telly and does manage to get a proper narrative going of, no, we want a clean Brexit, no, this is an awful deal, this is Theresa May's deal repackaged, if he gets some traction and starts the Brexit party start eating away the Tory votes then maybe they won't be so united. And also, conversely, if the Remain side get their act together and have a serious tactical voting operation, which all the signs are they will do, whether or not they can agree sufficiently on which seats go which way, then that would also be bad for yeah. them, I suppose. And it doesn't even need to be that organised, because in many ways it just needs yeah. to fall out naturally. You know, the Lib Dems are more likely to do better in the southwest. Labour are more likely to do better in Liverpool and Manchester and so on. And... Currently, the electoral system has sort of moved back towards the Tories in terms of how votes translate into seats because the Liberal Democrats almost got wiped out and because suddenly there's Conservatives in Scotland and there aren't Labour MPs in Scotland. If those things start reversing and suddenly the Liberal Democrats are winning seats again and the Scottish Tories get wiped out, then suddenly the electoral arithmetic between votes into seats will stop favouring the Tories as it did do and start moving back towards Labour. And suddenly, a seven, eight-point Tory lead might not translate into a majority anymore. I was talking to one Tory strategist the other day who they have this concept of the red wall of seats in the sort of Midlands and the North that they need to win over to compensate for the Scottish seats that they're expecting to lose and some in the South West, etc., in London. Do you think those voters are open to the Conservative Party or are they so kind of hostile for all kinds of historic reasons so that they won't ever vote, especially for a sort of old Etonian leader? Traditionally, they have been very hostile and that's been, and in some places it's breaking down. That's why the Tories managed to do well in places like Mansfield and Ashfield and so on. Because those used to be mining seats and they're slowly transitioning towards commuter seats in Nottingham and so on. And so in some places, the demographics is, are helping them. But in other places, there's still that ingrained dislike and distrust of the Tories. I mean, there's probably never been a better time for them to break it down because suddenly Brexit identities are counting that much more than party identities. So if they're going to have a chance, this is it. 
I think, but it's still a challenge. I think w- one of the things that's not being talked about that might get in the way of, of, of that strategy as well is BME voters. I was talking to um, a, a guy yesterday who's from West Yorkshire. Was talking, we were talking about Halifax, where Labour have a seat of uh, 5,500, which went up at the last election. The majority of 5,500 went up at the last election. And I was asking him, is that a seat that the Tories could think about getting back or, or getting um, at the next election? And he said, no, the BME community is too large. The Tories are continuing to fail to make much of an inroad um, into the BME community. So city centres look very difficult for them in the North and Midlands. Uh, places with large BME populations, looking at Oldham, Rochdale, large parts of West Yorkshire, they could struggle there in a way that they might not do in you know, former coalfield areas, for example, or ex-industrial areas in general. Do we know yet, Anthony, how the fact that we're not going to leave the EU on 31st of October is going to affect what people think about Boris Johnson and the Conservatives? Has that... You can't sort of poll what people expect they're going to feel, but do you think that could have a a dampener on his poll rating? That's what we were supposed to be. We were supposed to be doing a podcast this week about how we were leaving the EU on Thursday. Do or die. People have asked it, and people say, oh, no, I wouldn't blame Boris Johnson. It's all the fault of the EU or the MPs or so-and-so. I don't really trust the polls on it because people aren't very good at predicting that. And the key group you're looking at there aren't the people who follow politics all the time and know that Boris Johnson had this bill passed against him and they wouldn't let him do this and so on. It's the people who haven't paid much attention. But they saw Boris Johnson say he was going to leave, do or die on October the 31st. And now it's November the 1st and we're still in. And we just think that guy promised to do something and he hasn't delivered. Which I suppose is why he's having this huge row about the election, to avoid everyone noticing that. Hmm. (laughs) You terrible cynic, Rachel. (laughs) Um, And just finally, Anthony, before we move on, one of the things that YouGov did in the 2017 election was the, maybe what MRP stands for? Multi-level regression and post-stratification. Very good. Which is basically a seat-by-seat analysis, a massive, massive poll, and then using demographics for each seat, you did a projection of what might happen in those seats, which actually was... Surprisingly accurate, particularly in those some of those key seats like Kensington, you projected that Labour would win that. I think some of the Tory gains against Labour as well. Are you doing that again? How does it work? And when will we see it? We, will we doing it again? Um, uh, it, it works the way you just explained. <laughs> um, um, but one of the one of the elements is it that when we ask to collect the data for it, we use the actual list of candidates in each constituency. So you've got people are faced with a list of you know their local Lib Dem candidate and local Labour candidate and so on. So, so do you actually do a massive poll in each constituency? There's or? one massive poll overall. Okay. So it's tens of thousands of people, and then it's not just the people in each seats that project each seat it's the people of those demographics in similar seats that are used to model each individual and seat. that 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 if i get that if i understand it rightly i mean that can that can you know account for the fact that a lib dem voter in richmond park is very different from a lib dem voter in take a place at random taunton for example taunton's exactly. a very good podcast about that just last week and so when you're have you made any changes to it since last time or was it essentially the same it's essentially the same model and um, obviously it's we'll factor in the European elections since then how people voted in European elections because new data so you might as well take account of it but there's no massive changes other than that and are you going to bring it out one at the beginning of the campaign or is it going to be because no, last time first, you did it right at the end yeah no first one won't be until after we've got all the lists of candidates in each seat and then we've had uh, some days after the list of candidates have been published to collect data based on that. So it won't be until like, near the end again. 
Well, we look forward to it because it caused an absolute storm last time and everyone laughed at it and it turned out to be one of the most accurate (laughs) forecasts of what was going to happen. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that all pans out. Let's try and drill down now into the two campaigns. We'll talk about Tory campaign and their their genius mastermind later. But first, let's focus on Labour and this is Rachel Sylvester. The left used to be united in opposition to the Labour leadership, but now they're in power, the faction is fracturing. With the party tanking in the polls, even the true believers are starting to question whether Jeremy Corbyn is the new Messiah, and John McDonnell is emerging as a rival force who's willing to put pragmatism before purity. This doesn't feel like a campaign gearing up for success, does it, um, Rachel? Well, the- I know two years ago, but they do seem there do seem to be sort of some big problems in Team Corbyn. Well, the thing that's very strange is that a lot of Labour MPs don't actually want Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister. So they're going to have to be going out to their constituents saying, OK, vote for me. But actually, they don't really, really want the party to win enough seats to get Corbyn into number 10 because they actually think he'd be a threat to national security. They don't necessarily agree with his economic policies or host of reasons, anti-Semitism, as Gabriel mentioned. So it's a really peculiar dynamic. But then what I think is very interesting is John McDonnell is becoming this more and more powerful figure, partly because Corbyn is so weirdly absent, is how everyone describes him. Uh, And McDonnell is much more focused, much smarter, much more determined to win. He's willing to make reassuring noises when necessary. You know, he won't sag off the civil service. He won't warn of a sort of deep state conspiracy. He's willing to talk to people who don't agree with him, whereas Corbyn is happiest when he's at a nice campaign rally being patted on the back. Anthony, Jeremy Corbyn's poll ratings, I know we've said this before, but they are even worse than when they were bad last time. You know, whether it's on the Ipsos Mori one, which goes back much further than new govs, it's the worst they've ever found for a party leader. He, uh, even on new govs um, uh, polling, more than half of people who voted Labour in 2017 think he should resign. Only just half of people currently planning to vote Labour say they're going to back. Uh, They say that he should stay as leader. It insulated him within the own part within his own party. The fact that it suddenly shot up during the last election campaign, and even then it didn't shoot up very much. Everyone remembers now there was sort of Corbyn mania, and everyone loved him. And it wasn't. He sort of he shot up to a rating of a, of a net zero of about zero or minus one or something. You know, when there was Clegg mania, his ratings were plus eighty. Corbyn mania was you know minus one or two or something. So he's what, f- fifteen points behind where he was in 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 early in early twenty seventeen. Yeah, he's right back down below when everyone thought he was really loathed. But now, suddenly, you know, there's still that school of thought within Labour that he's some electoral magic. And they're clinging to this idea, Gabriel, that uh, when the broadcast rules kick in, as if a Labour politician is never allowed on the telly at any other time, uh, all will be well again. They think that because during the election campaign last time round... They enjoy this increase in the polls, which they put down to the fact they get more airtime on the news. Do you think that's right? Um, no, I, I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly, I, I do focus groups up and down the country. You know, and what do people say about Jeremy Corbyn? They laugh at you. You say, "How do you think Jeremy Corbyn is doing?" And you say it in very neutral terms, like that, and and they laugh at you, or they are vituperatively hostile um, towards him. Um, I very, very rarely come up meet people who think he's doing a good job. Only the most tribal of Labour voters in the deepest of Labour heartlands. Those are the only places where you find people who are partisans. And even his supporters. I mean, I've done quite a lot of work with 
Labour Party activists, Labour Party members, etc. Um, and even people like that, the anti-Semitism thing has cut through with them, and it's cut through in an interesting way, I find, which is it's cut through on competence. And they say, we don't believe that Jeremy is anti-Semite. But why can't he deal with this? Why can't he whack it and move on? Why can't he talk about the things that we're really interested in? So you don't have to, you know, be a kind of, uh, you know, massively involved in this issue to for it to affect you at all. It, it, it operates at different levels. Will the broadcast laws give them a better chance to get their issues on the agenda? Because most at the moment they fail miserably, but when the press have to give them their five minutes, yeah. will it give them a chance to actually talk about the yeah, yeah, maybe, but also, also, as well, that presupposes that those policies are actually popular, and there are some policies that are popular. People are generally... I mean, you know this, you're a pollster. People are generally quite keen on nationalisation. I find that in the qual work um, that I do. What's qual work? Uh, focus group, sorry. Okay. But things like private education has been a dud of a policy. Mm. The suggestion of, of banning private schools has gone down incredibly badly. And you talk to people in, say, Walsall, um, about that and they say well if you have the money why on earth wouldn't you want to send your kids to a good school rather than the rubbish sort of school that I went to and that's exactly why Boris Johnson is taking this enormous gamble of holding an election because he's thinking he's up against Jeremy Corbyn if he if he puts it off any longer Labour might actually get their act together change their leader get somebody more popular so it's worth the risk I was talking to someone the other day saying it's like you're in a race to escape from a bear you only have to beat the other guy be beaten <laughs> by the bear and Jeremy Corbyn's more likely to get eaten by the bear Boris Johnson thinks than Boris Johnson is you don't actually have to win the race neither of them are very popular but you just have to be less unpopular than the other than guy than the other guy but then yeah. there's a risk we end up back with a hung parliament and it, we, well, we're unable to get Brexit done I mean, that's a, the irony of this whole ridiculous situation is that Boris Johnson says he wants to have this election to resolve Brexit but it's he's deliberately muddling up Brexit with all these other issues and putting Jeremy Corbyn into the mix to try and get his smuggle his Brexit deal through on 35% of the vote or whatever potentially rather than actually having a clean referendum of course that was the um, mistake the trees made in 2017 she called a Brexit election nobody else really talked about Brexit and while she was trying to talk about how she was going to get Brexit done Jeremy Corbyn was talking about hospital parking charges and fox hunting and all the other stuff that motivated their base and once the election is called Boris Johnson's ability to force that narrative just by being the government evaporates a bit. I think this one will be more focused on Brexit, probably. And that is a problem for Jeremy Corbyn, again, because he's got a very, this position of constructive ambiguity, has watered down his support among Remainers. But I think there might be a, if there is a sort of motivated tactical voting campaign, that would overcome that. Anthony, we heard at the weekend uh, about this, 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 sort of staff meeting at Labour HQ Carrie Murphy Corbyn's former chief of staff has been moved sideways into a sort of an election campaigning role she said there was talk of them pursuing a 95% strategy um, the, the, the previously the one that we'd heard about was Ed Miliband had a 35% strategy if he got 35% that would be all right you know Corbyn can only dream of that at the moment but um, this idea that basically we go out and campaign everywhere we can target every seat there is nowhere we will not go what's the risk for a party of doing that that most of it is completely wasted. As most seats, they're not going to win. I mean, in, in terms of where Corbyn went and did his own little rallies and things during the 2017 election, lots of those weren't in target seats. And we all looked oddly at him then and thought he was bonkers. But in one sense, you know, it was just for the TV cameras. He went to places he was going to get a big crowd. So he had lots of TV pictures of him in, in front of adoring crowds singing, Oh, Jeremy Corbyn. So in that sense, where you put Jeremy Corbyn, 
probably doesn't matter. But where you put your resources and your volunteers and your leaflets and things, would, you'd be mad to put them in seats. You, I mean, I see very for. little sign of a Labour cut through in Isha and Walton. You know? <laughs> That's the uh, Dominic Raab seat. It is. Which, which the Lib Dems are optimistic about. Well, yeah. And I ran into some Lib Dem canvassers the other day and I asked them, hi, chaps, how's it going? And they said, we're neck and neck. I mean, it's got, a very Remain area of the country. But he's got a decent majority there. And I know... I it's about it's about 12,000, yeah. something like that. But I mean, you know, the Lib Dems thought they all had decent majorities in 2015. Indeed. I mean, the Lib Dems are coming from third there. They'd be coming from third. There is a kind of, you know, an old Labour traditional working class vote in seats like that. Lots of seats in Surrey and in the southeast of England. Uh, you know, Woking, Guildford, places like that, who are quite leavy. Labour is simply not going to make advances there. They never would expect to. However, I do think the Libs are, are looking interesting in places like that. And I mean, what about the Brexit party? Well, these are very Remain places. Mm. But uh, could they split the Tory vote? Potentially, but that old working class Labour vote I see as, as looking more interested. You know, this is it's quite an aspirational working class vote as well. I see them as being prime candidates to swing into the Tory column. But I just go back to the, the sheer remainness. And suburbia is changing. It's becoming more multicultural, more multiracial, better educated as people move down. You know, London is pricing people out. So a place like Epsom, Chris Grayling seat, it would take a political earthquake for that to be vulnerable, probably. But we've had a succession of political earthquakes <laughs> uh, yeah, for the last given, three years. Given the other We're on a fault earth- line. But given the other political earthquakes we've had, Chris Grayling losing his seat. No, interesting. It's not, uh, not quite, quite, quite but it is big. The, Anthony, do you think there is, it's true that the axis is shifting politically? So it used to be left-right, Labour-Tory, kind of the old traditional class-based politics seem to be breaking down and we're going to this much more leave, remain, open, close dynamic. Do you think that's going to hold or in, in an election campaign or will we be back to more traditional? Oh, the leave, remain thing is, is definitely there. If you ask people if they identify as a party, people are sort of, um, uh, or a bit. If you ask people if they identify as remain or leave, then yeah, most people say yes. And mm. they say yes quite strongly. So at the moment, it is the driving force and it will... I assume, make people break with traditional party loyalties mm. in many cases. Um, um, whether it will last, I don't know. Sometimes these things can last. If you look at the effect that the Scottish independence referendum had in Scottish politics, you know, that hasn't gone away just because it's, what was it, five, five six, almost six years in the past now. Mm. You know, it really did break the mould and rearrange Scottish politics. So I wouldn't... I wouldn't assume it will go away quickly if Brexit's sorted, if Brexit ever gets sorted. I suppose just before we move on from Jeremy Corbyn, the advantage for Corbyn of having the election now is that his policy still holds. Elect me, I will negotiate a different, a different, better jobs first Labour Brexit and then put it to a second referendum. It's not quite as much of a muddle as it might have been had we left this week and then had an election. Well, and the same for the Lib Dems. That's presumably why they've switched. Because if we had actually got Brexit through, if the withdrawal agreement had gone through, what is the point of the Liberal Democrats? So in a way, that I think their move is quite cynical. <laughs> the party of rejoin. Yeah. <laughs> Although to what extent do you think that the fact that talking about Brexit, talking about Remain and Revoke has got people listening to the Lib Dems, signing up to their email lists, some people, you know, lots of people have joined them, People aren't going to just abandon them in the event that we actually leave the EU. It's given people, it's given them a, a, a hearing that they've lacked since 2015. I'd be very interested to see some name recognition. I don't know if you've seen any recently, but 
Jo Swinson, even though six weeks after mm. taking over, her name recognition was still catastrophically low. I'd be interested to know what it is now. Presumably she'd benefit from that in an election campaign, though. Yeah, to a degree. But I, I dread to bring the subject around to them, but someone will ask it sooner or later. Debates. TV debates. Yes. There's an opportunity then if she's this, yeah. she is a complete unknown against two people who aren't much liked yeah. so there's an opportunity and also if, if Farage is included in those debates which I think there would be quite a strong case for given the way the polls are going um, that is bad for Boris Johnson isn't it because that emphasises that he's not the true Brexit you know, if you have Farage on one side and Swin- yeah. Swinson on the other both socking it to the, the two main guys yeah. then it becomes much more complicated Anthony mentioned something a moment ago that I thought was really interesting you know that Farage has been invisible for the last you know 48 hours or very low key at least the Brexit party does seem to be all over the place I mean there are people quoted I think in the Times this morning are using the phrase get their shit together the Brexit party just seemed a little bit rabbit in the headlights at the moment well, at, we one saw- po- at one point Farage was furious that we weren't going to leave on October 31st while also calling for an extension so we could have an election <laughs> yeah they yeah. can't quite work out what their position and, is and I, I'm wondering if they're kind of you know their luck has run out you know they got very lucky early this year and terrified the Tories but their mojo has now gone uh, before we move on I've just looked up Joe Swinson on NewGov's profiles page which is very good you can put in any politician and brand and all that sort of thing to see 11% of people have got a negative opinion of her 17% are neutral 11% are positive 39% have never heard of her that's actually slightly better yeah, than I was expecting better than perhaps. Um, all <laughs> people what? are lying we'll probably come back to the Lib Dems uh, later in the uh, election campaign um after the break, we are going to talk about uh, the toys, and in particular, one man, Dominic Cummings. Genius or menace? We'll try and answer that question after this short break. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back. You're listening to Red Box Podcast with me, Matt Chorley, gearing up whee, for an election. Uh, I'm joined in the studio by Anthony Wells from YouGov, Times economist Rachel Sylvester, and this is Gabriel Milland. Dominic Cummings, genius or menace? The answer is, uh, of course, that he's a bit of both. If he pulls off Brexit and puts the Tories in a position to win their first decent majority in over 30 years, then that'll be pretty genius-like. 
But as he likes to say, a revolution is not a dinner party, comrade. And the cost will have been quite a lot of menacing along the way. So, Gabriel, you were you were a journalist. That's how I uh, first met you. Worked in yep. the lobby, but then you went to work for the Department of Education, where your Indeed. paths crossed with yeah. Dominic. What is he like to work with? For people who have owned, their only experience of being those extraordinary photos of him walking up <laughs> Downing Street in his decorating clothes, yeah. what's he like to work with? The simple answer is he, he's, if, if, you know, if you're on his team, he is fantastic to work with. And if you're not on his team? He's tricky. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, you know, the key thing I'd say um, um, about Dom, I worked with him for three years, he wants to win and he enjoys winning. And what he is a very good example of is that you can achieve an awful lot in SW1 and perhaps in life if you don't care more than anything else about how many people like you. That's probably true with quite a lot of politicians. The ones who in the end are happy that some people don't like them are the ones who make uh, progress. But there are also a lot of people, you know, in this in, in this world who who want to be loved. Yeah. And, and Don doesn't care that much about that, to be honest. Do you think we're seeing a bit of that rubbing off on Boris Johnson, a guy who did used to love to be loved and actually now is taking positions which not everyone is happy with? I think there is a certain amount of Cummings discipline that has been inserted um, into the Prime Minister. And that was probably necessary. If you talk to people who worked with him at City Hall, for example, there is a certain amount of rigour and focus. One of the skills that Dom has is that he's a very, very, very good project manager. He's able to sit at the top of a complex programme, like what we did at DfE when, you know, we opened 500 new schools, a new national curriculum, new national exams. So I should have explained that Dominic Cummings at this point was a special advisor to Michael He was a special advisor to Michael Gove. An awful lot was done. People will argue either how much was achieved, but an awful lot was done at DfE when Dom was um, Michael's key spad. Um, or one of his key spads. Do you think he had too many rows? Because you could say, actually, the Gove education reforms were really an extension of the Blair reforms, not yeah. that controversial at one level, but they turned it into this huge row and a controversy and turned Michael Gove into the most unpopular politician. In, you know, So even David Cameron had to move him out of the department. And whether that was unnecessary to make so many enemies, they went to war with the educational blob and it was all it was all a fight. I remember talking to him at the time, it was mm. all about a battle against the system. Whether in the end that made the system turn against them in I a way that what, wasn't productive or I, necessary. Look, I think the idea that the education establishment would have meekly sat back um, and accepted the overwhelming turning most of English schools into academies, getting rid of national pay bargaining, uh, making it easier to get rid of teachers who aren't very good. The, the idea that they'd have meekly sat back and accepted that if there had been more round tables at DfE, HQ and Sanctuary <laughs> buildings, you know, or if we'd serve them better biscuits when the general secretaries came in, is, um, well, it's doubtful. And what about now Dominic Cummings in Downing Street? Almost everything that's done by Downing Street these days, somebody responds on Twitter with classic Dom, good or bad. What, what, what for you has been the most classic Dom thing that's happened, that's emerged from Downing Street, which, you, which actually is down to him? I think the wardrobe, probably. Uh, <laughs> Why does he do that? Why can't he just dress like a normal person going to work? Well, I think, look... Is it, is it all for show? Because he, he did put a suit on for Leo Varadkar. I, I've seen him in a suit as well. It gets to another point um, about him, is that he genuinely is an outsider. Uh, to SW1, despite the fact he went to a fee-paying school, despite the fact he went to Oxford, despite the fact he's worked in and around SW1 for, you know, 20 years, <laughs> he genuinely 
does consider himself to be an outsider. Is that not the difference? There's a difference between considering yourself to be an outsider. I mean, I could mount, uh, I grew up on the Somerset levels, I didn't go to university, I got a job at a local newspaper. I am not going to argue that I'm not part of the Westminster bubble, yeah. given that I've spent 15 years working there. Yeah. Just because he turns up to work in Doc Martens and a hoodie does not mean he's not as much a part of that bubble as the rest of us. I think that's... A possibly a reasonable thing to say. But, <laughs> what, but what I challenge you um, as well is he does think differently to a lot of other people in SW1. For example, I mean, this is widely known, but despite the fact he did history at university, he subsequently taught himself maths to postgraduate level. I don't know anybody else who does that. He reads peer-reviewed science you know, these are weird things for SW, <laughs> SW1 Nicks to do. Yeah. You know, your, PP, your average PPE grad, you know, can just about make a convincing explanation of what, you know, of what Keynes said about economics and perhaps can do a bit of philosophy. They're, they're pretty lost after that. I think the interesting thing and the attractive thing about him is he is original and different and he talked we interviewed him once back in 2014 and he talked about how he wanted to change the wiring of Whitehall you mm. know he thought the whole idea of a permanent civil service was disaster and actually Brexit is a change the wiring thing isn't it he's a revolutionary but the danger is that he wants to do that in such a sometimes it's a too destructive way and can you change the wiring without causing a fire is the issue. And sometimes I think he's too willing to cause the fire. And he has been in recent months with the constitution, things like proroguing parliament. It's all very well changing the wiring in a way that makes the lights work better. But if you do it in a dangerous way, it's um, counterproductive. Yeah, I think that's right, potentially. But it's not just British constitution that he's interested in you know, in reforming. I think one of the interesting things um, about him, another of the interesting things about him, is that he is someone who's kind of, you know, he's, I don't think he's ever been a member of the Conservative Party, but he is someone who is kind of shorn of nostalgia, um, shorn of imperialist nostalgia. He has an idea about the future of this country that is based on education, based on science and technology, that is really very different um, and shorn of the kind of the imperialist nostalgia that's cloaked a lot of Toryism for the last 40 years. One of the interesting tensions, rather, is he has come some way to being in a position to make the kind of changes that he thinks is necessary. But he's done that at the price of allying himself with some of the more reactionary and nostalgic and stop the world, I want to get off tendencies in society your average so leaver he, won the, he yeah. won the brexit referendum with by allying effectively with nigel farage and the breaking exactly. point poster even though he hated that there's a saying in, in politics in texas i remember that you got to dance with them what brung you um and the voters that he's brung <laughs> to the tory party are not voters who are going to get necessarily that excited about gene editing or ai or, or quantum computing and also, it's all very well thinking, oh, we're going to have gene editing or QI or whatever. But what about actually the fact car factory in Sunderland, where a lot of people have their jobs, which potentially is going to go to the wall if you go ahead with the revolution? Mm. So what happens in the transition period? That's what I think he's not very, uh, doesn't care enough about. He's too much of a revolutionary. So it's it's kind of ground zero. But then what about, how do you get there? I think it's going to be a fascinating mm. manifesto. 
And what about Anthony? When I've been doing my stand-up show, uh, tickets are still available in uh, Leeds <laughs> and Exeter. Uh, search this is not all. The very mention of Dominic Cummings in Bury St Edmunds, Taunton, uh, as well as Finchley and Cambridge. The very mention of Dominic Cummings is getting boos and hisses like I'm in a pantomime, which really surprised me because he says, "Get out of London and find out what people really think." And it turns out they don't like Dominic Cummings. <laughs> now, admittedly, these are people who go to regional arts centres to hear him out from the Times. But it's interesting that he is getting cut through and people have an instinctive reaction to him. I'm not sure he is getting cut through. I think it is just the people who go oh, to regional arts centres. <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's hard for an advisor. By advisor standards, he is. You know, Alistair Campbell saying cut through. People knew who he was, you know, but... But it's still quite niche compared to, if you consider most members of the cabinet people haven't heard of and hardly any of the shadow cabinet have heard of, to be an advisor and get cut through is really, really difficult. You know, the people who follow politics obviously all know Dominic Cummings is, but... But they wouldn't have all known who Gavin Barwell was. No, and no one knows who Eddie Distia. No one says classic classic Eddie underneath. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, those of us who were kind of around the government in the last few years know that there was, you know, an awful lot of really quite frightful behaviour by people. You were talking about Nick Tiverth in front of him, which has been well documented, the way that they uh, ran Theresa May's Downing Street. Exactly, and the, the Seldon uh, book has been fascinating. And not many people have been played by Benedict Cumberbatch on TV. That, is, well, that, that, does, that does, help his, profile, does help his profile a little bit. <laughs> and if you're engaged enough in the Brexit debate to still feel passionate about it one way or the other, you know that he was the, the brains behind uh, Vote Leave. Um, I think we've almost run out of time, but I should, because we are now in an election period, I should probably ask what each of you, what do you think is going to happen? I'm Gabriel. torn between Tory majority and another hung parliament. Anthony? No, you won't lure it out of me this early. No. <laughs> no fun at all. Wait till. I really don't know, but I think there is a chance we end up with another hung parliament. I think it's too early to tell. And um, which seat, which is your current sort of favourite pet seat that we should keep an eye on? You touched Ooh. on a couple before, Gabriel. I mean, someone, someone, someone asked on Twitter the other day which seats are worth watching, and I, 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 and you know, I'm no kind of, and I said all of them, frankly. <laughs> I, you know, I think all of them are going to be fascinating, and they're all going to have different stories, and they're all going to have different forces uh, at work. But I would be looking very closely at those Labour seats in the kind of the post-industrial, quite white heartland. If they show a movement towards the Tories then that is really interesting. Anthony? Lots of the Lib Dem, you know, long shot ones are interesting in London or the, you know, the cities of London and Westminster and, and, and uh, Finchley and Golders Green and so on. Um, and, but Gabriel was talking earlier about BME voters and so on. Interesting London seat with growing BME population is, is Uxbridge. Uxbridge is Boris Johnson's constituency. That's <laughs> that a very good really one. That's a very good one yeah. to keep it on. What about you, Rachel? I agree with you about Uxbridge. And then the ones the parties seem to be obsessed with are Mansfield. They're all obsessed by Mansfield. Apparently Labour's um, election broadcast, they get someone with a Mansfield accent because they're so keen on targeting that. Uh, so that's one to watch as well. Very well, good. They're all top tips and we'll keep an eye on uh, how they um, all progress. Uh, thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen so you don't miss any emergency episodes which may or may not emerge in the coming days as uh, the election unfolds. Uh, and have me explain politics, or at least try to explain what's happening in the election by signing up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. With now, my thanks to Rachel, Gabriel and Anthony. For me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. <laughs>